Well, Happy New Year again. And that's the traditional greeting. I think perhaps what we want to say also is, may it be a blessed new year where we experience a measure of well-being in many different ways. What, we, what you've fondly heard me refer to as shalom, that Hebrew word which encompasses total well-being. May we experience that and measure of that this year. That's what we're wishing one another. And to help others to experience that as well, because we're centered on Jesus, we know who we are, and we know why he's left us here in our everyday, before the consummation of when he comes. So I've titled our talk this morning, Partners with God, A Vision for Our Everyday. And it's the underlying vision for the sermon series that will begin next week that Pastor Matt will give on fruitfulness on the front line out of Colossians. And very simply, our focus is this. What vision do we have for who we are and what we do every day? How do our everyday occupations connect with God's purposes in the world? It's sort of like the questions of life. Who am I? Why am I here? Now, if I were to ask you that question, I know most of us would know a good Bible answer to that. We are children of God. We're loved by him. We're created to glorify God, to follow Jesus, to worship him, and to love God and our neighbor. And all wonderfully true. And all very general that every good Christian would answer. And in that generality, I believe we can miss the radical nature of who we are and what God has called us to in redeeming us. And very simply, it's the title of our message, so to speak, we are partners with God in his work of restoring all things through our daily work and activity. Partners with God in his work of restoring all things through our daily work and nothing less. Now, in my experience, myself included, I believe most people in church have not envisioned themselves as a partner with God in his work of restoring all things through what we do every day, getting up Monday morning and basically saying or praying, God, what is our work today? What is broken that you are restoring? But what if we did? What if God's people across the world, not to speak of in our own country, what if God's people who have experienced a measure of his shalom through Christ would bring that influence intentionally where we live and work, seeking what God is doing, seeking his kingdom, radically loving people in whatever space we enter? What if we envisioned ourselves as partners with God and not simply children of God? What if we were to wake up Monday morning with a prayer like this, and perhaps you've heard me say this before, God, I'm going to my ministry where you have called me to work with creativity, excellence, and integrity to display you to others for their well-being and to make disciples. I'm going to work. Show me what that looks like and in whom you want me to invest. 
Now, I do not believe this has been the normal posture for believers for the simple reason that there is a centuries-old sacred-secular divide, we can call it, that has marginalized most church people into thinking that ministry is something you do in church, led by professional ministers who serve the Lord full-time, who involve others in volunteer ministries who serve the Lord in those two to four hours a week that they may give to the church. And the rest of our lives, the remainder, well, that's our work. Stop. Consequently, most often, we do not think of our everyday work as being our ministry, let alone our primary ministry to which God has called us and led us to. So the sacred-secular divide can be defined in this way. See if you can identify with this. It's the common belief that some parts of life, typically religious activities such as prayer, worship services, and church work, are sacred and more important in God's eyes and everything else that makes up ordinary life, which occupies the lion's share of our time, school, work, family duties, such as doing the dishes, changing diapers, spending time with one another, picking the kids up from school or from sports, whatever it may be, music, the arts, politics, hobbies, that's all secular and somehow of less interest to God and somehow not as worthy of our attention as are the more religious things that we are involved with. Now, the insidiousness of this is that theoretically, in our heads, if you were to ask us, we know that's not true. But it's another thing to live out all of life as sacred and to treat it as such. Abraham Kuyper, who was a famous theologian at the end of the 19th, in the beginning of the 20th century, who was also the pri a prime minister of the Netherlands, famously said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. We could stop there and just go into that. How much, how much of our lives are we aware of? They, it, it all is under him, belongs to him. So if you followed the series, The Crown, or understand even the least bit about being part of a royal family, you understand that a major theme throughout is, that the, is the reality that a, the members of a royal family do not really have a life of their own. So in the last episode, if you followed it, in the last episode, we get to the point where Princess Diana, because of all that she's gone through with Prince Charles, is contemplating leaving the royal family. Now, have we heard these themes before? They seem to come up. She's contemplating leaving the royal family. And in this last episode, we have Prince Philip, who enters into the chambers of Princess Di, and there's this emotional conversation in which he says to her, everyone in this system is a lost, lonely, irrelevant outsider 
apart from the one person, the only person that matters. She's the oxygen we all breathe, the essence of all our duty. Your problem, if I may say, is you seem to be confused about who that person is. Now, aside from the fact that we are not irrelevant, we are lost, lonely outsiders, apart from the one person, the only person that matters. He's the oxygen we all breathe, the essence of all our duty and love. Our problem sometimes is we seem to be confused about who that person is. And that's our starting point. We exist for the crown. We exist for the crown. And for the believer, there's no sacred secular divide. All of life is sacred. It all belongs to Jesus. And for the rest of our time, we want to look at God's perspective on our everyday activity, on our work, all of which belongs to him. Now, we start with the simple definition of work, which is activity involving mental or physical effort done in order to achieve a result. So that does include employment primarily, and that's what we think of, but it's far more than that. It includes grandparenting, which is delightful work. It includes parenting, which is often not so delightful work. It includes uh, marriaging. That's a new word, which we know takes work. It includes being in retirement. It includes all of our schooling. What are we telling our children about what their school means? It includes all of that. And that's why we use the term whole life discipleship. It includes all of life, whole life. And if I were to ask you, what is the purpose of our work? Well, that famous verse from 1 Corinthians 10 comes, comes, comes to mind where whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, we do all to the glory of God. A very well-known and well-worn out kind of phrase because oftentimes we don't unpack that. What does that mean to do all to the glory of God? I'm going to begin here. Our work is to be a reflection of God and the means of his work in the world. That's what it means to do all to the glory of God. And that's what we're going to talk about today. God is at work. God is at work in the world, whatever you conceive that to be. And we are the means of it. No plan B. So we start in Genesis chapter 1, which we call the original Great Commission. And there are these verses, which you heard read previously, and I'm going to just read a few of them. Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And unlike everything else, this is what's amazing here. Genesis 1 paints a picture of God step-by-step step, creating the world and everything that's in it, bringing order out of chaos. And the culmination of that is the crown of his creation, humanity. And unlike everyone, everything else, we were all made 
a little lower than God. And what was God's intention in that? His intention was that he wanted a creature with whom he could have relationship that was like himself. And through that relationship, to be re for his glory, who he is, to be reflected in the whole world. His intention was relationship and the reflection of his glory in the world. That's why, for instance, it says in Psalm 72, may the whole earth be filled with his glory. Well, amazingly, amazingly, God's original intention that the whole earth would be filled with his glory through a flourishing humanity that he created. And that's why we call it the original Great Commission. God told the humanity who was in relationship with him, fill the earth, or in words that we're more familiar with, go into all the world. And that brings us to a very basic and question that we need to consider. What do we reflect of God being his, in his image? And that's an enormously important question that we could spend the rest of the year talking about. What do we reflect of God? We're going to sum that up in three different ways. First of all, we reflect his love. God is an eternal community of three, of three in a perfect love relationship, the model for God's people, the model for humanity. It's Jesus' desire in his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17 where four times he prays for our unity, for our oneness that reflects his oneness. And it's no accident that all humanity longs to belong, just like the Trinity belongs, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Our deepest joys and memories are associated with relationships of some sort. Just as our deepest hurts and wounds come from the failure of those relationships. Everyone, knowing God or not, desires to give and receive love. And that's because we are relational to the core, made a little bit like God. And that's why radical love is the greatest apologetic of all. And that's why... We have, amazingly, we have the capability of that because the Spirit of God, the love of God has been poured in our hearts to overflowing through the Spirit of God that has been given to us. And that brings us to his justice. God's justice is the standard for all that is right and good in the world. It encompasses rescue, whether that is talking about trafficking people who have been slaved or, or an abusive relationship or bullying that occurs on the job. Whether it, it encompasses equity and fairness, something we all desire in all of our relationships and circumstances and which we sometimes have a hard time coming by. And it ultimately encompasses restoration, the reversal of injustice and sin. And all humanity, whether knowing God or not, recoils at injustice, desiring a just world, however they may de define it, because we are made in the image of God. It's the reason why organizations, like I just saw an advertisement for Penn Medicine, are talking about we can change things. Why do we want to change things? Because the whole world knows that things aren't right. 
And it's the reason why reflecting God's justice is equally as important as reflecting his sacrificial love. Though we don't often talk about that as much. And Micah 6.8 famously brings that together where it says, What does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God? And that brings us to his works. We reflect his works. Everyone here is wired differently. I'm sorry. Thank God. We're made a little like God, reflecting him through all the various abilities and talents and vocations we all have. We are all not musicians, praise the Lord, but thank the Lord for musicians and for artists and for politicians and for electricians and for clerks and for everyone else. We all reflect God in different ways through how he created us, how he wired us. And we all reflect him in these different ways, his love, his justice, and his work. That's what we reflect in the world. What does that look like? Now, there's kingdom language here in these verses in Genesis. It's the first mention in the Bible where we see the words he tells us to subdue and rule over all, to rule over all. That's kingdom talk. God rules, always has, always will. But we just celebrated the birth of King Jesus. And Jesus spoke of a kingdom arriving. He went to the cross, died for our sins, rose from the dead, and ascended to his throne and inaugurated his kingdom. We have entered that kingdom. Colossians says we have been transferred from the domain, from the authority of darkness, and transferred into the kingdom of his dear son. And that is our identity according to Genesis 1. Vice regents. We don't think about that too often. Vice regents created to rule. We exist for the crown. If you take anything away from this message this morning, take away, we are vice regents, created the rule, we exist for the crown. Let that change our perspective on our everyday. So we are like him in his image. That's our dignity, made a little lower than God. Our whole world is looking for that because the moment in which we throw God out of the picture, we lose our dignity. And that's why we have an epidemic of people searching for that dignity. And when they can't find it, they despair and lose all hope for life. Our dignity, we are in the image of God. That's where we begin in our relationships with other people. And we were created to rule. That's our purpose. As vice regents, we carry out his kingdom work in all the world through our work. Wherever we are, wherever we live and work, that's who we are, vice regents. How we do that, well, that's going to be the next series of messages. How do we do that in our everyday? What does that look like in our everyday? But these verses are called the cultural mandate. 
they're called the cultural mandate. I don't know if you've ever heard that, but they're called that for good reason. Because wherever we go, we create and influence culture, whether we are intentional about it or not, because culture happens through the ongoing words, actions, and attitudes of people in a group setting. So your family has a culture. Every family here has a different culture, different characteristics of that. Every church has a different culture. And every workplace has a different culture. We could go on there for a while and ask us, what are some of the characteristics of the culture in which we live? And I'm not talking about America. I'm talking about the cultures where we are present. What are characteristics of our family? And at the end of the message, I'm going to leave you with some questions to process that. Carmen Gallo is an author and consultant for the likes of Bill Gates and others like that. And he said very simply, whether we plan it or not, culture will happen. Why not create the culture we want? So, for instance, we're all familiar with Trader Joe's. And I would say that a lot of us like to go there and shop when we have the opportunity. Why? It's so friendly and they're so helpful. And they've been asked that. Why are Trader Joe's employees so friendly? And as one of their employees would say, we want to give customers an experience you can't get elsewhere. And my friends, that culture of Trader Joe's does not happen by accident. They are taught that, and their culture, the leadership, intentionally wants to bless their employees and make it a great place to work. That's why it's hard to get a job at Trader Joe's because no one wants to leave. And when the employees are treated well, guess what they're going to do with the customers? They're going to treat the customers well. And that's all about creating culture. And wherever we are leaders, whether we're leaders in our family, whether we're leaders in our job, whether we're leaders in our church, we are architects of culture. And it begs the question, two questions, Number one, how aware are we of what we are creating? How aware are we as family leaders, what we are creating in our family? Secondly, what are we creating and what do we want to create? Now, when God gave this mandate to steward creation on his behalf, what characterized the culture of work relationships and the environment of Genesis 1? Famous words, shalom, well-being, flourishing in every sense with God, with one another, and the culture they created. It's what we were created for. It's the way things should be, not the way the world is. And as God's vice regents, humanity was, humanity is the means of God's work to develop a world of shalom where humanity would flourish and glorify him. So picture this, if you can. Picture this. The great king has summoned each of us into his throne room. Take this portion of my kingdom, he says. I am making you my steward over your office, your workbench, your kitchen stove. Put your heart into mastering this part of my world. Get it in order. Unearth its treasures. Do all you can with it. Then everyone will see what a glorious king I am. That's why we get up every morning and go to work. We don't labor simply to survive. Insects do that. 
Our work is an honor, a privileged commission from our great king. God has given each of us a portion of his kingdom to explore and to develop to its fullness. That's who we are. That brings us to the garden, our garden, humanity's workplace on mission. In Genesis 2.15, where, the, you, where Adam is told to cultivate and keep the garden. Work starts in the garden that God worked to create. Contrary to sometimes popular opinion, work is not an evil add-on because of the fall. On the contrary, work is a reflection of a working God built into our DNA. And, and keep in mind, when I say work, that's all of our activity, whether we're a stay-at-home mom, whether we're retired, whether we're in school, whether we're at our job, wherever it may be, our every day, every day. Many point out that the word for work or to cultivate is the Hebrew word avodah. It means to worship. It's the same word for work as to worship. We don't have an English word that can bring the two together, but the Hebrew word does. And it shows you why our work is worship. And we actually imitate God in our work. And whether that's blue-collar work, white-collar work, whatever kind of work it is, we imitate God. And it speaks of the dignity of work no matter what we do. And even if our work, we, even if we don't for the moment have an opportunity to, quote, speak of Jesus in our work, our work has dignity in and of itself as an imitation of God. That's why Martin Luther King told African Americans way back when in the 60s, he said this, if a man is called to be a street sweeper, he should sweep even as Michelangelo painted or Beethoven composed music or Shakespeare wrote poetry. He should sweep streets so well that all hosts of heaven and earth Pause to say, here lives a great sweeper who did his job well and reflected God well. Why did he have to write that? Because oftentimes the African-American people couldn't rise above that kind of job because of the color of their skin. And he wanted to emphasize great theology. That work has dignity. And that's a very important reality, my friends, because most of the world do not have the luxury of working according to their giftedness, getting a great education, and having the job of their choice. Most of the world cannot do that. And many of us, many of us probably might not even like what we're doing and wish we could be doing something else. We need to remember this about the dignity of our work. And what does that say to us about our garden where we live and work? Our daily work is our sacred venue to love God and others. It is our place where we create, shape, and influence culture to reflect his love, justice, and beauty, bringing flourishing to our world. It's our venue for making disciples, investing in people. Now, we know sin messed that all up, 
And that's true. But just for a moment, imagine if Genesis 3 did not happen. What would we have? We'd have a whole world that reflects God's glory in which humanity flourishes, a whole world that reflects God's love and justice. We would have shalom. What's important here is that God has not rescinded. He has not canceled the Genesis 1 mandate. God's intent is that his glory would be displayed through a flourishing humanity and world, and that's our vision for our everyday. We are his vice regents, his partners, his ambassadors, his agents in our everyday until he comes. No plan B. But Genesis 3 happens, and sin enters, and shalom has been vandalized, and culture reflects our corruption and the consequences of the fall, and, and we see Satan with, with the work of Satan, and it affects, and it affects w w the woman and the man and sexuality and man and nature. It affects everything. Work can be hard, disappointing, characterized by selfishness, and conflict, all of those different things that make us think that work was a result of the fall, which it's not. We are still in his image, but we are macchiato. You've all, got, you've all had a macchiato. It means stained. The image of God is in us, but it's stained. And the entrance of sin means our world is broken, People are exploited, and love does not work as God intended, and exponentially so, where the gospel has had little or no influence. But God has not canceled his Genesis mandate, and so much so that he sent Jesus. And Jesus enters to reverse the fall and restore all things broken, to bless the world. And no sooner had the fall happened that we had our first promise of the Redeemer in Genesis 3. But I'm going to read some verses from Colossians 1, which sum up what God did and is doing through what Jesus did. Colossians 1, verses 19 to 22. For in him... All the fullness in him, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above approach before him. Jesus' coming, cross, and resurrection are not just about getting people to heaven as important as that is. And the theology that many of us learned is heaven-centered rather than heaven and earth-centered in which Jesus' kingdom has already broken in through the gospel and we all are his partners, his vice regents, beginning that reversal and restoration, beginning his kingdom work that he started, that he inaugurated. Colossians says that Jesus' work was sufficient to reconcile all things, providing for the restoration of the universe, the new heavens and earth, but it begins now. And my friends, that affects the way we look at our daily work and purpose. That famous verse that we normally sing in Joy to the World, Joy to the World, the Lord is come, let earth receive her king. 
There's a verse that says, No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. And guess what? We're the instruments of that. God doesn't just zap it from heaven. You and I are the instruments of that. We are restored image bearers, mandated to fill the earth, rule over all under Jesus. And in his kingdom, the great reversal begins. And Jesus reverses guilt with forgiveness, shame with honor, broken relationships with reconciliation, injustice with justice, oppression with deliverance, poverty with economic well-being, sickness with healing. It's only beginning. It's only beginning. We're not going to bring in utopia. We all, we know too well that there is still so much brokenness in the world, and that's why we call these things an antipasto. And an antipasto in Italian doesn't mean before the pasta. It means before the meal. And we give people a taste awaiting the banquet. We give people an appetizer of the coming kingdom through our everyday work and relationships. It has already come, but it is not yet. And in the meantime, Jesus saves us not only from sin and sending us on a journey to heaven, he saves us to his original purpose, the cultural mandate, our command of restoring our identity as vice regents of the king of creation, partners with God in his work of reconciling all things which ultimately affects our cultures. And as God's people live out the gospel, they're changed, the people they bless are, and culture cannot help but be affected. And that, if, that happens at a small level, and it happens at a large level. It happens at a small level with your life changed by Christ. And, the person, and if you're in a family of that in some way, that family is going to be changed. But it can sometimes happen globally and everything in between. As the movie Amazing Grace a number of years ago was, it recounts the story of William Wilberforce, who was the British politician largely responsible for the abolition of the slave trade in the whole of the British Empire. He almost missed the opportunity thinking spiritual affairs were more important than secular political affairs. And there's this famous scene in the movie in which they're at the kitchen table in which someone at the kitchen table says to him, we understand you are having problems whether to do the work of God or that of a political activist. We humbly suggest you can do both. John Newton, who wrote the hymn Amazing Grace, persuaded him and said to him, it is hoped and believed that the Lord has raised you up for the good of the nation. And not only did he want to abolish the slave trade, William Wilberforce was also wanting to, they call it a reformation of manners. And by manners, they don't mean, oh, to put the knife and the fork this way instead of this way. They don't mean manners that way. A reformation of manners in the language of the day meant a reformation of the injustices and the degradation there was in the British Empire. Child labor, so many other things that we take for granted today. 
And he put himself as a politician for that. And through his vocation, through his vision, through his faith in Christ and perseverance, through his oratorical skills that he was known for that were given to him by God, he finally saw the abolition of slavery in the British Empire about 50 years after he began on his deathbed. And three days later after it was passed, he died. Vice regents who give people a taste of future flourishing, of shalom blessing them through how we work and the way we love. There's a shocking illustration of this in Jeremiah 29, where Israel was being taken away to Babylon. They were to surrender to the Babylonians who were God's instruments of his discipline, to go to Babylon. They were, go, they were to build houses. They were to plant villain, vineyards. They were to raise families. They were to fill the earth there. And last but not least, they were to seek the shalom of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. Don't miss the scandal of this command. They were to seek the holistic well-being of their captors who invaded their land, ravished and massacred their families and friends, and then brought them into captivity. They leave the safety, comfort of their community in Israel, sent into the world, to seek the shalom of the unbelieving community surrounding them. It was as if the Taliban came to America, overtook America, and then we're told, go love on them. So also, God sends us into the workplaces of the world to seek their shalom in the cultures where we live and work, seeking the kingdom of God. Profound implications for missions. God's global disciple-making work that we often talk about was never meant to be the domain of a select few of professional religious workers, what you and I understand as missionaries. All humanity in relationship with God is commanded to fill the earth. And the approximately three billion unreached peoples show how far we are from that. And one reason for that is we have often not been taught that we are all partners with God in his work of restoring all things through our daily vocations. That's our identity and purpose. Here are the questions I leave with you. Have patience. Questions for intentional culture making ruling wherever you are, in your family, in your job, wherever you are. One, what is good that we can promote, celebrate, and protect? Where is God working? Two, what is missing that you can contribute? Three, what is evil that you can resist or stop? Much discernment of the spirit is needed here. That's what William Wilberforce was doing. Four, what is broken that we can restore? Being a musician, I appreciate this perspective of Bono. I'm a musician. I write songs. I just hope that when the day is done, I've been able to tear a little corner off of the darkness. And five, who might you be able to bless? Who can you love on? Who can you invest in where, where you are? The book of Revelation shows me that the destiny of the earth is to be fully inhabited by heaven. 
My ultimate, this is important, my ultimate hope is not to be whisked away to a paradise in the clouds. Can't wait till I get to heaven. My ultimate hope is to see the world made new for heaven and earth to become one. And as a follower of Jesus, filled with the Spirit, I am a forerunner, a citizen of this future hope here and now. I carry the shalom of God into a troubled world that desperately needs it. That's our vision of who we are and what we do every day. God's vice regents giving a taste, an antipasto of shalom through how we work and the way we love. Will you pray with me as the worship team comes? Our Father in heaven, we are at the beginning of a new year, and we present ourselves to you, God. We present ourselves to you wherever we are on our journey with you, recognizing that all of this that we spoke about is of naught without you. We can do nothing without you. We are lost without you. But with you, Lord, filling us and in us, we can do all that you call us to in our everyday, wherever that is. We ask you, God, to show each of us in our everyday how you want us to rule and subdue, how you want us to live our everyday so that your kingdom might come your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.